Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we analyzed this week in Ontario politics with John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer. Inflation is at a 30-year high. Borrowing costs are rising. Supply chains are still a problem. But the auto industry in Ontario's manufacturing sector is still bullish. They plan on selling a lot of vehicles. We'll talk about why they feel so happy about that. And what are the key takeaways from last night's Capitol riot hearing in Washington? Elliot Tepper from Carleton University will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, begin with our uh, roundup of what happened uh, in politics this week, especially on this side of the border. Uh, as we know, it was last Thursday that uh, the PCs won huge re-election, of course, Doug Ford, four more years in office. Uh, but he's got some work to do now. Uh, it says he's going to be calling the House back to pass his budget bill. Remember, they introduced that just before the, the writ came down. But he's got some holes to fill in his cabinet. Christine Elliott, of course, who was the deputy premier, uh, didn't run. So there's that aspect of it. She was also the Minister of Health, one of the most important portfolios. And as Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News, Colin DeMello, tells us, that particular portfolio uh, is going to be very, very important going forward. And, and the premier has to be very careful as to who he selects. So insiders are telling me that, you know, Doug Ford's going to have to rely on somebody who he trusts implicitly, who was a cabinet minister in the last cabinet and who was an outperformer in that last cabinet. So some of the names that have been bandied about are, have been people like Stephen Lecce, who is a high performing cabinet minister, um, Greg Rickford, somebody who really has you know, has the ear of the premier. He understands indigenous issues really well as well. And so that could be another layer there. Uh, there could also be Prabhmeet Sarkaria, a person from Brampton who, you know, was promoted to uh, the president of the treasury board, a really high cabinet position, a visible minority within this cabinet as well. So he's got some choices to make, and uh, there are going to be some waves and ramifications of that to uh, talk about that and a number of other stories uh, in Ontario politics. Uh, so please to welcome back uh, John Best, who is the publisher, of course, of the Bay Observer. John, thanks for the time. Hoping you're having a great day today. Yeah, it's a beautiful day, and I'm happy to be with you, Bill. Excellent. Let's let's talk about the the cabinet choices here, and we can uh, dovetail from that into uh, two leadership races, which are going to be coming up in the next few months. Uh, the, the good news is, of course, Ford's got a couple of holes to fill. The bad news is, uh, well, there is no bad news if you're uh, one of the sitting MPPs. He's going to be, I would imagine, they talked about these holes that he has to fill, but there's going to be, I would think, a major shuffle here of some kind, just to put a different face, I guess, on the government. What, what kind of talk is going around in, in the Premier's office these days about who should do what? Well, I, I don't know what's going on in the Premier's office, but uh, I, I, I think his, his uh, you know, whenever you win with a, with a, you know, a real landslide, as this turned out to be, uh, there's just a lot of people that... Um, You've, you've now got more people to choose from, but you've got more people to disappoint. And, and certainly uh, anybody that was, uh, that was elected in uh, 2018 there's, and, and didn't get into the cabinet, they're thinking that uh, maybe there's an opportunity for some of them. And obviously there's not enough room. He's got he's to bring back a good chunk of, of what was the original government. So there's probably only really three or four openings, maybe half a dozen openings at tops for anybody that's new. Uh, one name I would also throw in with those others that were being discussed is uh, Monty McNaughton, who uh, really, in many ways, I think, uh, was uh, an outstanding performer 
Um, and, and a big reason why I think Doug Ford was able to get the labor unions on side. Uh, McNaughton uh, really seemed to uh, resonate with the, with the labor movement. He obviously has some great political skills. So he might be somebody that um, in the, you know, he, he might be considered as well for uh, the health ministry. The uh, thing about Leckie is um, he, he was in a high-pressure job. Um, my, my sense of him is that, that he tends to spew out numbers whenever he's challenged. He was almost like mm-hmm. a count in Sesame Street. Uh, every time somebody said something to him, uh, he'd say, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, 5,600 new nurses, and he was always spewing numbers. That may be a good thing. Uh, that, that's a communication quirk. Uh, how, how we actually manage the, uh, the department uh, is quite another matter. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fun, but there's, there's going to be some hurt feelings uh, when it's all over. And, um, and Ford being Ford, he, he really does like to try to please everybody. And, and this is a situation where he's simply not going to be able to do it. Well, and therein lies the problem. Uh, you know, the, the people that are closest to him uh, it will tell us that he doesn't like to hurt people's feelings unless he's angry at them. You know, and, and somebody was saying, well, are there any people on cabinet that may not get the call again? I don't think so, because anybody he didn't like or he had done something which he figures is going to be bad for him, he, he already fired them. Uh, you know, he, they were dismissed from cabinet positions. They were at, well, they resigned the next day, quote, you know, with air quotes. So it's it's his team that's in place there. Uh, but he's got to make some t- choices. And, and I think as you were telling us last week, John, uh, you know, as the dust settles on this, there are some seats that they won that they weren't really expecting to win, hoping to, but not expecting. And you've got to reward those. And I guess one of those areas is Hamilton. Um, you know, Donna Skelly's an incumbent MPP who was reelected. Neil Lumsden was a star candidate for them who took a seat that they haven't held for many, many years. Uh, does he look towards the Hamilton area now for one of those cabinet positions? I, I would think definitely he will. Uh, and the reason I suggest that is because uh, in the last uh, uh, government, um, a member from Burlington was put in the cabinet, but we have a brand new member from Burlington now. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, I think it's going to be Don or it's going to be Neil. Uh, I, I think that, you know, to represent this area, I think that's uh, probably what you're going to see. I'd be surprised if it wasn't a Hamilton member, frankly. At, the, at this point. Um, so let's see what happens. That, that's going to be an interesting one. And and I have no way of knowing, nor nor does anybody, of, of which way he'll go. Well, and to that point, do you will go by seniority then? I mean, Donna, as, a, as an incumbent uh, who's been there for a while and, and, and was the spokesperson uh, for this area on a couple of key issues. As a matter of fact, she wasn't always on message with what the Premier wanted when it came to things like LRT, but nonetheless, uh, she was up there. And uh, does she get rewarded for that? And, and if she doesn't, if they went to a, a guy like Neil Lumsden instead for some position, what does that tell Donna Skelly? Well, um, obviously she would not be happy. And uh, so I, I'm sure she would argue for, for seniority. And, and she has been uh, a loyal member. And uh, she was one of the few, frankly, that was allowed to participate in all candidates' debates. I, I think she had to twist a few arms to be allowed to do that, but nonetheless, she did. So she certainly got communication skills uh, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she's got she's got some strengths that, that would make her effective in cabinet. If it doesn't happen, obviously, she's going to be disappointed. Let's uh, yeah. And, and 
we'll see what happens. As you say, I mean, you can't say yes to everybody, and that's going to be one of the problems that he has here. There was a problem he had four years ago, though, John, when he won election, and, and he got raked over the coals for it. And I guess it's a, a, a fault that oftentimes befalls many politicians, is they, they figure, I owe this group, I owe that individual because of the work they did on the campaign, how the support that they offered. Uh, and he got into some heat for that, you know, uh, uh, trying to name a new OPP commissioner, kind of circumventing the process for that. Uh, some other uh, non-governmental appointments that he did, which were really friends of his or people that made huge donations. The theme of this last campaign seemed to be, well, no, Doug Ford's mature now as a politician. Uh, he understands that he's got to say no to some people. Has he learned that or are we going to be in for what many politicians uh, fall prey to? And that's simply, OK, I, I, you know, patronage appointments, basically. Well, first of all, patronage, patronage is a fact of life, and every government's done it. I, I think if sure. you went through uh, Kathleen Wynne's appointments, uh, I doubt very much if she appointed any enemies to uh, any of these positions. Uh, I, I don't know why people get so wound up about patronage. It, it is what it is. And um, the, the argument you hear in favor of patronage is that in these key positions, uh, the government wants to make sure they have people running these various offices who are, whose views are in line with the government. Uh, there's no point putting somebody in a key position and, and then having to fight with them uh, for the next two or three years. So, uh, I, but, uh, but to answer your question, I, I think he has. Uh, you know, pandemic has kind of put a pause on what we would call normal, but it really did seem that after that first year, and, and frankly, after he uh, changed uh, chiefs of staff and reorganized his own office, it seemed like those kind of blunders pretty much came to an end. So I, I would not expect him, uh, even though he's, uh, you know, it's clear sailing for him for the next four years, but I think he did learn, and uh, I'd, I'd be very surprised if he blundered into uh, an appointment that, that would cause uh, a lot of controversy now. Uh, let's uh, pivot over to, uh, to the other two major parties anyway. Um, the Liberals and the NDP are looking for leaders. You know, both of the leaders tended their resignations, of course, on election night last week. There's eight people in the caucus, uh, the Liberal caucus right now. Uh, as I mentioned on my commentary this morning, you, you could fit the whole caucus into a minivan and, and probably still have room for luggage. Uh, who's Who wants the job, I guess, comes down to it. I know there's some talk about about uh, Erskine Smith in, in uh, a very, well, I could say popular MP because he, he doesn't, take any problems at all with taking shots at the prime minister but uh, it's not often that a, 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 an mp will leave federal politics and, and scurry back into provincial it has happened uh but is there a future i mean you know the, the, i don't think there's going to be any magic rebound here where the liberals are going to go from eight seats and and even form uh, you know a, a, an opposition government they got a lot of work to do to to, to grain regain i think credibility within the the uh, the, the province of ontario right now they're they're a non-entity a non-power they have a they have a lot of problems, Bill, and not the least of which is uh, if we go back to uh, Stephen Del Duca becoming the leader. At no time, uh, you know, immediately the focus was on let's find a new leader, uh, as it is now. But I have yet to hear anybody talk about uh, other than uh, Vito Scro, who you had on earlier in the yeah. week. I I haven't heard anybody talk about having a, a session to talk about policy, to talk about ideological direction. So in the case of Del Duca, he took over the party and seemed to think that uh, a different messenger was going to be the answer. Uh, the party has veered uh, 
way off to the to the left in, in some policies or even left of the NDP. And, and the idea that you wouldn't understand that that's the reason you have eight seats, uh, you know, uh, voters in Ontario up until even when they elected uh, uh, Dalton McGuinty at the beginning of his uh, term, it was still seen as a more or less centrist government with, you know, certainly some progressive tendencies. I can remember Dalton McGuinty coming to Hamilton, one of his early speeches after he became premier, saying, you know, we've got to do something about reining in health care costs because uh, the way it's going right now, uh, we will have nothing, you know, it'll squeeze out every other department and we'll have nothing but a health department. So, you know, you go from that to where we were in this last election where we're going to hire 10,000 nurses. But, you know, uh, it, it really strikes me that the party has got to get its ideological act in order. There's no rush on a leader. And, and part of the reason that they're going to have a problem is that they're, they still use kind of an antiquated um, uh, co- uh, convention system uh, that involves delegates being selected by the riding associations. And these riding associations are essentially dead. It's, it's not like the old days when, you know, four or 500 people would turn out to a nomination meeting. It, it's really just a clique of hardworking, devoted people, but they're not representative of much of anything. Uh, they And all the other parties have gone to one member, one vote, and, and even that's got flaws, but at least, at least, ordinary people can see a reason to get involved. So th- there's a lot to be fixed there and they've got time to do it. The question is, is there anybody left that that would put up their hand and say, we got to move back to the center? Uh, that's going to be the, uh, the the million dollar question, I guess, for the liberals. I and mean, you can't just change the driver of the bus when you run off the road. You've got to think about, you know, the condition the bus is in and which way they were going, I guess, too. Uh, more to come on this as we go along, though. Uh, John, have a great weekend. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What we've been talking about on Tech Talk for a number of years, I guess now, is about electronic vehicles. And it, it's funny to see the progression that's occurred over the last uh, two or three years that, that we've had a segment about, about EVs on uh, Tech Talk with Adam. Because they went from kind of a concept thing to, oh, no, it's going to happen. You know, and, and uh, autonomous vehicles and on and on it goes. And it's a reality. And now... You know, federal governments, provincial governments, uh, and both sides of the border here in North America are catching on, and it's becoming a priority. It's not unusual, by the way, for the politicians to be the last ones to the party, uh, because they really just kind of, you know, look and see where public opinion is going on something like this. And there have been so many factors that, that have been, you know, a, a part of the discussion and a part of why the automakers are where they are and why I think the, the buying public is where we are right now, not the least of which, of course, is the uh, skyrocketing price of uh, gasoline and uh, fossil fuels. And that's not going to get any better for consumers anytime soon, we're told. So you start looking for alternatives. And uh, to their credit, of course, they've made some uh, great innovations. I mean, this used to be, hey, that's a nice concept, but boy, those things are expensive. The average person's not going to buy them. And we'll get to that in a couple of minutes because that's starting to change as well. Uh, And, uh, well, we're going to be talking to them for a long time to come. It just uh, seems to me as if uh, sometimes uh, fates and the things that are occurring in the world can have a huge impact on the way things are going. And it reminds me, uh, we're going to get into more detail about the EVs in a second, uh, years ago, uh, and, and this would go back, I guess, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was still the governor of California, uh, he, he came up here, I think Premier McGinty at that time had invited him to Ontario to talk about innovation. 
uh, and what they could do in collaboration and uh, and addressing uh, government officials and uh, the auto industry. I think it was in Toronto that he was making the speech. And Arnold basically said, you don't have to legislate all this stuff in there. I mean, you know, there need to be guidelines granted. But he said the uh, the industry will respond to the public's desire to get this done. And he, I think there was a, a, an element of truth to that because we've swung that way and now so have the automakers. And and everybody can change their opinion on this. And I think a lot of people did when it came to EVs. Uh, and Schwarzenegger, I think, was a cl- classic example of that. I mean, you know, a big macho guy and, you know, he still drove a, a you know, a, a big, large car, of course, a Hummer, I think, as it was, uh, but it was uh, it was electric uh, because, well, you know, he was that innovative. And it's not lost on us either that, uh, you know, now that the prime minister uh, is down in California for that convention, uh, he's met with the California governor as well to talk about how uh, Canada and the state of California can start moving forward on some of these uh, incredible inventions that are going on, especially when it comes to EVs. And on that topic, he said, coasting from one end to another, uh, the CEO of Ford is now predicting that the competition and lower costs are going to trigger a price war over the electric cars and trucks that are being manufactured. Chuck Siverston has details. The cost of building electric vehicles will fall to the point that in coming years, automakers will be battling each other for sales of EVs priced around $25,000. That from Ford's chief executive, Jim Farley, at a business conference in Detroit Wednesday. He predicts materials to build that car will cost about eighteen grand. The battery cost alone now is 18000 but the Ford chief says battery technology will improve and get cheaper. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. I want to bring Brian Kingston into the conversation. Brian is the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Brian, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Well, I wanted you, I'm glad you could make it here today because I wanted to get your read on uh, what seems to be a brewing story here. I mean, we, we know that there's a huge problem with inflation right now, uh, supply chain issues, and, and a lot of different uh, challenges, shall we say. And there were some economists that were saying, you know what, this is going to have a negative impact on this uh, this stuff about EVs. People just aren't going to be able to afford them. Uh, and, and, you know, they're going to sit there on the lots if they build them. But there's, a, I think, a growing number of, of people, in not just in your industry, but, if, you know, economists that are looking at the bigger picture and saying that's not the case. Uh, this is a this is a tidal wave of, of public opinion uh, and a need, you know, and consumers want these things. And, and they're predicting pretty good times. What, what are you hearing? Yeah, there's a couple of things going on. There's no doubt that there is an absolute tidal wave of interest in EVs and investments from automakers. If you look at Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis alone, those three companies are putting over 100 billion US dollars into EV technology, more and more vehicles coming to market. And we're looking at forecasts now that are suggesting global EV sales are going to be nearly 60% by 2035. This is a big acceleration from even last year. That said, there are some immediate challenges in this transition. We've obviously got some economic headwinds. We've got a spike in battery mineral prices, which is impacting pricing. And we have this ongoing charging infrastructure problem, which is a real barrier to a lot of people. So I think we'll get through the short-term challenges with the right policies, but the trend is definitely electric. Have we cross that that very dangerous line or that very important line uh, of consumers saying because the, I, even a year year and a half ago Brian when we talked about this with our listeners uh, the consensus seemed to be yeah this this is looking pretty good but I'm gonna wait for a while and see how these work out and maybe next year or the year after I, I'm, I'm getting the the opinion that a lot of those people have, have moved that cycle along right now and they've sped it up and say no 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 I want to find out as soon as possible when I can get one of these 
Absolutely. We're seeing a much more interest and more education about what EVs can do. A lot of people had concerns around, for example, range. Will this vehicle be able to drive the same range as my gas powered? Well, you're seeing vehicles coming into the market now in the light pickup truck segment, in the SUV segment, which will have comparable range to a gas powered vehicle. So that gets rid of that concern. That said, we still have the price barrier. We still have the charging infrastructure questions that need to be addressed, but there's no doubt the consumer is really taking this seriously now. What about the battery situation? Because you're right, the criticism then, and and Tesla is pretty much the only one in the market at that time, uh, is it's it's cold up here in the winter in Canada. And and, you know what happens with the batteries in cold weather? They they die pretty quickly. I I know that they've been working on this. Uh, Are they making headway? They are making headway, and there's a massive amount of investment and R&D going into battery longevity and range and testing in cold weather. But there is no doubt that uh, an EV in a cold climate is going to have reduced range uh, just because that's, you know, that's how the battery works. That said, there is a way to address it here in Canada, and that is to overbuild the charging infrastructure. We're going to need more than, for example, what you would have in Southern California, where temperatures aren't going to be an issue. But you live in rural Canada, you're in Northern Ontario, for example, you're going to need to charge more frequently in the winter than you would in a warm climate. So we do have to address that. There are some unique Canadian challenges that we've got to wrap our head around. And, and that's really a government problem. Is I mean, it's a problem for the consumer, certainly. Uh, but I got a friend of mine who lives in the Oakville area and, and has a place up in the, in the Muskoka area. I, and he said, look, I do this, but he says, I got to know that they're going to be charging stations along the way. Uh, you know, the, the, sure, they're going to be some in Oakville. Sure, there'll be some in Toronto. Uh, but, you know, where else? You know, it, when you go through uh, some of these little gorgeous towns up in northern Ontario or through the cottage country, they better have some charging stations in there pretty quickly. And we're really fell, falling behind in that, aren't we? We really are. And our latest estimate suggests that we're going to need 4 million public chargers, 4 million to support a fleet of 40 million electric vehicles by 2050. So that's the scale of the challenge here. We need to make sure that consumers can charge their vehicle anywhere they're going, and they're not going to face big lineups to wait for your turn at the charging station. It will be available and it will be fast charging. So we've got a lot of work to do on that front. On top of that, most charging does occur at home. People drive in a radius around their house and they can charge overnight, which is fine if you live in a detached home and you've got a driveway and you can afford a charger. But we've got a third of Canadians that live in multi-unit residential buildings. That's apartments, condos, towers. How do we help them make that switch? They're not responsible for the parking garage in their building. So we've got to encourage commercial real estate owners to help build that infrastructure in because that's going to be critical. If you can't charge your vehicle at home overnight, you're going to have a hard time making the justification to switch to an electric. That's an interesting point uh, because we're. It's funny how these things are always intertwined. Once you and I start talking about this, because uh, one of the other big initiatives of governments, federal and provincial, right now is housing, building a housing. But you know, we don't have enough stock. That's one of the reasons the prices have gone up in the real estate market. Is as I guess what we're saying here is that you know if new builds that are going to be happening in the next little while. There's going to be a demand for a charging station with the construction of the house. I would think. That's exactly it. Yeah, we have to have this in the building code so that when there is a new build going in, at a very minimum, the electricity capacity is built in, maybe not a charger installed right there, but there's the ability for the homeowner to install a charger when they purchase the home. So that's that's the first challenge. And this should just be standard in every new build uh, that, that a Canadian or an Ontarian purchases. On top of that, and this is probably a bigger challenge, is how do we help 
owners of older buildings that don't have the electricity capacity, they don't have the grid readiness, how do we help them convert their old parking garages to having the ability to charge EVs? That's very expensive to do when you're retrofitting these old buildings, and, and that's going to take a lot of work. Let's talk a little bit about the industry itself and, and going forward. And uh, you know, we've talked about you know, the, the announcements that have been made about uh, huge investments, and, and Ontario is certainly going to benefit from that, and that's great news. Uh, we just heard in our report from Chuck Siverston here that uh, the, the head of Ford is predicting good things for the industry. Um, uh, Mary Barra from uh, General Motors, uh, it, pretty much echoing the same sorts of thing, uh, and they she mentioned that one of the big challenges is is going to be product. Uh, you know, 10 years ago when you we were talking about EVs, you were talking essentially about Tesla and there wasn't a whole lot else going on. They're all into it right now. And I, I think if, if I read this correctly, it seems to, Brian, that what they want to do is replicate it within the EV uh you know, corral the same kinds of models that I could buy with a gas-powered engine. You know, if, if you you drive a, a Lexus, you want to have a 350 that's going to be that way. If you drive a Chevy, uh, you want more models. I mean, that was one of the great things about buying a car. Uh, there's always selection. You know, you can get a different model instead of simply, well, this is what the EV looks like. Are they moving along in that way? Is that one of the reasons why they're making these huge investments in, in the manufacture of these vehicles? So we as consumers will have that choice? Absolutely. And that is the direction the industry is going right now. If you look at the market right now and the vehicles that are coming to Canada, we're seeing electrified versions of things like pickup trucks. So the F-150 Lightning, you're going to see an electrified Ram, an electrified Silverado. You're going to see bigger SUVs. 80% of vehicle purchases in Canada are in the SUV and pickup truck category. So to help more Canadians want to make this switch by having access to the vehicles that they know and love, but in an electrified version is going to be critical. And this is what automakers are doing right now. You will see fully electrified lines of vehicles available in the coming years. And I think that's going to be huge for EV adoption. Because you know, when you look in the past, the selection was limited. You had maybe smaller cars, sh- smaller ranges. That has rapidly changed. It's a totally different landscape. I think one of the things that maybe caused some consternation here was a tweet, I guess it was last week from Elon Musk, uh, suggesting that this wasn't going to be as, as prosperous as everybody thought. And he was even thinking, I think he actually just said he was going to have to lay off about 10% of his workforce. 48 hours later, he, he issued another tweet simply saying, no, 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 I was wrong. They're actually going to have to hire more people. I, I guess somebody finally put a spreadsheet in front of him and said, look, Elon, look at where this is going. You know, the, the demand here is, is ridiculously strong right now, given the fact that a lot of people are very nervous about oh, spending money already, but they don't seem to, to, to have that same sort of reservation about these. Uh, what was that stat we saw the other day that you and I were talking about? I think it's almost 50 or 60% of people that are thinking about buying a car, want a, they want an electric car. That's, that's, that, that's the goal. Exactly. There, there's a lot of interest. Um, you know, automakers are putting about 515 billion U.S. into this transition, just to give you a sense of the scale and the, and the production capacity that's being ramped up. And we're seeing more and more when we survey consumers that they're really considering making an EV their next purchase. The big challenge there, though, is when we look at the survey data, there's an intention and a desire to look at an EV, but the price gap is still significant. We're in excess of $20,000, $30,000 when you compare an electrified compact SUV to a gas-powered one. And that will be a challenge. And that's why we've been very strong on incentives. If you want to accelerate this transition and make it happen more quickly, you've got to help consumers. The the median household income in Canada is $57,000. Most people do not buy a vehicle that is more than their median income. That just doesn't make sense. So we've got to help this work for every Canadian. and, And that's where the incentives really come into play.
Well, let's talk. I know we're just about out of time, but let's talk about incentives because that's a debatable point here in Ontario right now. Uh, British Columbia has the highest rate of, uh, of EV purchases, 13% of new vehicles. Quebec is 9.5%. Ontario is the only uh, market in this country uh, that doesn't offer uh, those incentive programs. And we're at 3.3% right now. So if we want to get out of last place here, uh, and, and, you know, pull a Kentucky Derby thing. The government's going to have to get on side with this. And I know I, I, we've talked at long length here about the fact that Ford canceled the programs, uh, that he took all the charging stations out. But that was then, this is now. And I think the fact that he's made this commitment to charging stations is wonderful. But the, the part B to that has to be offering some kind of an incentive program so those people that want to buy those cars are going to get some relief immediately and, and get into the game. Exactly. The Ford government has done a great job in bringing new investment into Ontario, $13.5 billion from Ford, GM and Stellantis. This is very exciting, huge economic benefit for the province and for Canada. But part of that now is making sure that the vehicles that are being built here can actually be purchased and sold to Canadians. And Ontario stands out as the one jurisdiction that doesn't have an incentive. And as a result, Ontario lags BC and they lag Quebec. And I understand the debate around incentives. Yes, it's expensive, but if we want to push this transition and make it happen quickly, that is the single most powerful tool to do it. And ultimately, we want this to be accessible to all Canadians. This shouldn't be something that's only for higher income Canadians. And the best way to do that is to put an incentive into the market. It can be time limited, but to help push that adoption curve quickly right now. Well, I hope somebody's whispering that into the premiers there, because that certainly would be helpful. Brian, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Riveting TV last night, uh, prime time as it was, with a congressional hearing uh, about what went on January 6th, of course, with the insurrection at the nation's capital more than 500 days ago. But uh, they're still getting around to some of the testimony last night and uh, of exactly what Donald Trump's involvement was in in all of this mess and uh, they've got a lot of uh, evidence a lot of people on tape uh, global's reggie cicchini explains exactly what's going on there's no doubt that president trump was well aware of the violence as it developed for nearly two hours on thursday night donald trump's actions and words were put at fault a committee investigating the riot laid groundwork to argue the violence was connected to lies that the election was stolen and how the proud boys and oath keepers played central roles as instigators and as Republicans pushed back on this being a partisan effort, a blow was dealt to their argument. Multiple other Republican congressmen also sought presidential pardons for their roles in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. The hearings continue next week. It's unclear what type of action the committee will pursue and if the Justice Department will prosecute. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Those last two questions that Reggie raised, I think, are, are very germane to this con- conversation. I want to bring Elliot Tepper in on this as well, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Uh, thank you. Good morning, Bill. What a time we're living through. It is. And listen, I'm a Canadian through and through, and, you know, it's hockey season, playoffs, and, uh, you know, the choice last night was Stanley Cup playoffs or this, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, this, this was a riveting TV last night. Well, if it can drag you away from hockey. there, you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's this is a, a fundamental question about the future of democracy in America, and of course, you know, we are next door. Uh, what happens there is bound to affect us uh, first and foremost, but also to those who just care about the whole idea of democracy and that grand American experiment and the grand Canadian experiment uh, involved in democracy. So it was indeed riveting. 
Well, and I'm glad you framed that way. And I, I know that uh, you know, Benny Thompson, who's the, the, the chair, uh, Democrat from uh, Mississippi, used that same phrase. This is not just about uh, Trumpism and, and, you know, fake news, blah, blah, blah. This, is all, this was an attack on democracy. And the, I guess the, the basic inference here is, look, if you let these people get away with it, who's next? You know, in other words, why even have elections if you're just going to storm someplace and take over power? I mean, that's what hunters do down in, you know, in what they call the banana republics. Right. You never thought you'd see a day like what we saw on January 6th in the United States. Yes, he opened up his statement saying, I'm, I'm from a state where we knew about the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, we know about lynchings. Uh, so we know about threats to democracy. And then Liz Cheney opened up as well. Uh, I think the central message here was this was an attempted coup led by a president who wanted to hold power after losing an election and that the danger to democracy still exists. And that is kind of laying out the, the structure of the hearings. The rest of the hearings are going to demonstrate those three uh, aspects, I believe. And then the process that we're going through here, I think, is it's interesting. I mean, they, they say, you know, the, the, the wheels of justice move slowly, and, and maybe that's part of the frustration that we're feeling here right now, uh, because many of us saw this unfolding as it was happening uh, and wondered just, you know, what it looked like organized, but what's behind this? You know, where was the inspiration for this? And, and I think one of the first things, that, and I know that Liz Cheney talked to us last night in her opening remarks, too, is this was planned and calculated. This was not... Uh, a spur of the moment thing, uh, you know, because that's the way they wanted to portray it. You know, they got all pumped up from Trump's speech in front of the White House and they stormed the Capitol and things kind of got out of hand. I think that's how one of the congressmen actually stated it. But this, they, there's a lot of planning went into this and they've got the, the emails, the tweets, the evidence that substantiates that. The central focus throughout the evening on the Proud Boys might have surprised people because it's not been something, even though we saw all this in live real time when it was happening and then a lot of the immediate commentary a lot of the focus last night really was on the role of the proud boys and they had a, a, a documentarian who was embedded with with them and a lot of the uh, images a lot of the video that had never been seen before came from him why would they choose out of everything else to focus on the proud boys and it's exactly what you were just talking about this wasn't just it's to refute, basically, the Republican attempts to diminish what happened. Republicans have been diminishing uh, the severity of this attack uh, right from the beginning. Uh, we can talk more about that. But one of their main thrusts was, oh, people are just making too much about an assault on, on the Capitol building and the threats and the violence. It was just a rally that got out of hand, and it's too bad. But, you know, that's all it was. And what uh, a lot of time was spent in this opening hearing was on the Proud Boys and their role and others, the Oath Keepers. It wasn't a rally that got out of hand. It was a coordinated team effort uh, that was planned long in advance and that we are seeing on January 6th kind of the culmination of just one part. And that was a, another focus of particularly this Cheney in her opening. This is just one part of a very sophisticated effort to refuse to relinquish office after losing that office in America. The documentary film is actually an interesting twist on this, isn't it? Uh, Nick Cuesta is, is the individual, of course, that was doing this. And this was all pre-planned. I mean, he 
knew he was going to do a documentary about the Proud Boys and, and how serendipitous that he was there that particular day uh, because they were talking and he's got this, not just the video, but he's got audio and a whole other thing. It's almost as if they, he knew, you know, he, he does know. I mean, obviously this was something that the Proud Boys and, and uh, the other groups that were involved in this, the Oath Keepers being the other one I got mentioned a lot last night too. Uh, but to actually have the guy right there with the cameras rolling uh, to be able to catch all this and catch the reasons why uh, is, is well, it's a damning piece of evidence, really. Yes, and I suspect there's a lot more of it. If, and this is one of the questions raised, if this is all going to lead to actual culpability, remember there were deaths uh, on January 6th, and we had we should talk a bit about Carolyn Edwards and her, her testimony. This was the police op capital police officer who said, mm -hmm. we're, we're trained as police officers. We're not trained for combat. No police officers trained for what uh, what we had to face. And of course, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were part of that. The, um, the longer term question now is, and this is where Liz Cheney's opening statement uh, is being focused on by others saying, will there actually, actually be legal consequences that can be brought before a court based on what these hearings are going to show. These hearings are not meant to lead to an indictment themselves. They don't have that legal capacity. But she, she used the term illegal three or four times and cited statutes, uh, statutes that were broken. Well, all of that points to the Department of Justice and, and uh, it points to Donald Trump because uh, he apparently, according to what is about to be laid out in front of us, actually violated laws of of the land apart from the much broader picture which is which is what they're trying to make is that he tried to uh, subvert american democracy by holding on to power uh, through a, a range of actions including instigating the january 6th riots in order to stop the electoral process from proceeding as it is constitutionally required to do well, and to that point, you know, whether or not there's going to be a legal follow-up to that, I, I, I guess it's not legally binding, but the, the one clip of uh, Bill Barr, who was, of course, the Attorney General mm -hmm. under the Trump administration, uh, telling uh, the, the then-president that his assertion that this was a fixed election was, well, BS, although he didn't say BS, he filled in the rest of the letters, too, uh, gave you that idea that uh, notwithstanding the fact that, and Barr was an acolyte of Trump, make no mistake about it, you know, with the, the, the stuff that went on with the commission about the Russian involvement, etc., uh, but on this one, I guess he stood his ground on this point of law. Now, I don't know what Merrick Garland's going to do. I'm sure he's watching it with his staff about what's happening here. But uh, to that point, Elliot, we knew that there was an investigation into Trump uh, from the, the Southern District of New York, uh, you know, for many, many months and years. And, and that seems to have petered out. And we all thought this is going to lead to charges. This is now they're going to come after this guy for what he's done. I, I think there's a fear among some Americans watching this right now that the same thing's going to happen here. They're going to do this. It's going to be happening. And the Justice Department is just going to let it sit there. Because as you've told us in the past, uh, you know, you've, the, the main goal here, uh, I know these guys are saying it's just to present information. And you're right, as a congressional committee, they can't lay charges. But uh, you'd think with this body of information that they're going to move there somebody has to determine culpability but they're only going to do that if they know there's a pretty good chance of conviction i don't know that they've crossed that line yet no there was a, a hint given uh cnn interviewer named tapper uh asked the, jake tapper, chair of the yeah. committee <laughs> yes i sometimes call him my cousin jake uh <laughs> no, it, it, i have to emphasize quickly only in jest 
Yeah, but um, mm. asked the after the hearing was over, called on the committee chair and said, are you going to have a way, are you ever going to show evidence of an actual connection between the Proud Boys and the people around, and the Trump people? And he said, yes. You're, you're going to do that? Yes. But we don't know where that will lead. Uh, everything we've seen, and you and I have been talking about this for a very long time now, there's absolutely nothing ever actually sticks to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the the entire um, episode of his of his <laughs> tenure was fraught with all kinds of ways that should have brought him down before he got the nomination. He should never have gotten it, according to things that would bring down anybody else. He survived all of that. He survived all the various investigations. He survived two two impeachment inquiries. Uh, he was impeached but not convicted. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to suggest that his luck is going to run out. That uh, reference you made to New York, to the New York investigation, that was very far advanced. And then mm-hmm. Vance, the person in charge of it, left office. The newcomer came in and said, never mind, we're not going to go ahead with what seemed to be a very strong case, you know, watching it from afar. The possibility that it's another challenge to democracy for the Department of Justice to bring charges against a former president. The sitting president at the time when all the crimes, this is seen as a crime, was committed. So the committee is trying to say crimes were committed, uh, but we've seen that before where there was an inquiry and it was basically, okay, I've laid out all the evidence over to you, Department of Justice. It's a very severe step to bring a sitting president, and now former president, to justice, even though what this entire committee hearing is all about, and it's going to go on for some time and we're going to learn more, is to show that the sitting president refused to leave office, refused to have tried to intervene to prevent the peaceful transfer, and they were pressuring, uh, in this case we should come back to the hearings, Mike Pence. One thing we picked up out of the hearings was, you know, uh, Mr. Trump, they're, they're chanting, you know, hang Mike Pence. Well, he deserves it. Was one of the blockbusters that came out of that came out of this uh, hearing. Yeah, and uh, again, this body of evidence keeps building and building and building. But it, and that's the question that everyone's asking: Where's it going to lead? Uh, and you know, are they going to respond in in kind? Uh, and I mean, this is uh, you know interwoven with politics certainly too. And it's not lost. I think a lot of us, Elliot, that uh, the U.S. midterm elections are coming up in November of this year. Uh, do these people, even some of the Democrats that are in what they call swing states, do they want to rock the boat with uh, their imminent election or defeat uh, in the cards if they if they tick off some of these people who still support? You know, let's not. Trump got a lot of votes, notwithstanding the fact that he lost the election. A lot of Americans still stand behind him, and and he still got uh, that foundation. I mean, you know, just about every U.S. network covered this thing last night, except Fox News. Except Fox. Uh, they they had regular programming. Uh, and, and, you know, the acolytes that, uh, that Jim Jordans and, and others are still there harping along to give them the talking points and, and to, to feed that misinformation to the base. So I, I don't know if it's going to take a lot of courage for these guys to take that next step. Yes, David Brooks, the lead columnist, or one of the lead, the lead columnists for the New York Times, has said they've already blown it, that the, this committee has blown it, that they're not focusing on the real facts uh, the, the real core issue here, which is that democracy itself is under threat, and they should be looking at the ways that happens. The, I'll quote him here. The core problem, he's saying, is that there are millions of people who have three convictions. The election was stolen. 
violence is justified in order to rectify that, and that the rules and norms that hold our society together do not matter, and that it's a movement, not a conspiracy that's uh, underway. So I think, um, I think my key takeaway of all of this is that what we're finding out and what we already knew is, but, is that there was something that happened that we watched in real time, and it was clearly an effort to intervene in the ratification of the, of the legitimate election uh, of Joe Biden, and that the pres sitting president was interfering in, in that constitutional order. But what's also quite clear is that in front of us, as we've been watching, steps are being taken now to see to it that if this ever happens again, that is, if there's ever a challenge again like this, it's going to succeed next time because the Republicans are making sure they're never going to lose another election. Um, through gerrymandering and restricting voter rights, they don't plan to lose. And they are now, as we are watching, and this is David Brooks' point, that there should be a lot of, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, I, he should not be held responsible for what I'm saying, but, but I think what he's saying is that uh, their Republicans are now putting in place the machinery to overturn an election if they ever do lose another one. And that's mm -hmm. really what should be looked at. Yeah, and that's that's ongoing. I mean, that started the day after Joe Biden got sworn in. Uh, it just took a few days after that, of course. Uh, and one of the other legal experts touched on an interesting point, because I know some people are saying that, that what happened here was treasonous. Uh, and he, the, the lawyer mentioned, he said, technically it's not, uh, because they were trying to overturn an election that had yet to be verified by Congress, and, and Biden had not been sworn in. So they were not overthrowing a, a sitting president, uh, which is kind of a, 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 you know, a technicality, I suppose. But this is what they're heading for. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we've seen this happen time and time again. If you let them off the hook, then they feel emboldened. And the next step is going to be even more drastic. And God knows where that's going to lead them. But a lot of these measures, uh, Bill, are already in place. That is, Republican legislatures are passing laws to change the, the structures inside individual states. Remember, there is no national election in America. There are yeah. 50 state elections in America. And those state elections then have to be ratified. The ratification gets sent to the sent to the vice president, and that's where the weak spot was uh, was uh, pinpointed by those who wanted to intervene in the process and say, "No, he, he he can just turn them down." But no, the the state legislatures are setting up so that now attorneys general are being given powers that they didn't have to intervene, and that state legislatures can also overturn the results and. If, you, if one slate of electors is chosen, they can now substitute their own slate of electors, which is what Donald Trump was attempting to do and failing to do. So the, the attempts that were made in the past now can happen in the future, uh, even though they failed uh, last time around. So that's what's going on in front of us right now. We saw the, in real time the insurrection, and we now see in front of us the attempts to see to it that that insurrection would succeed next time. And the possibility that violence will be in, as part of that, of course, is is a um, major concern as we go forward. Uh, I know we're just about out of time, but I guess what really 
uh, puts a, a, a exclamation point to what you just said, Elliot. Is if the Republicans win the House uh, and can maintain hold of the, well, again, the Senate is tenuous right now. But if they control both houses as they did before, this hearing never is going to happen again. I mean, because they just it'll die right there on the order paper. So uh, th- there's a huge list of ramifications to this, which I want to continue uh, discussion with you at a future point, including the the influence of the Proud Boys and others. Uh, but we're out of time this time around. Uh, have a great weekend. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Really Thank you, Bill. Discussing Thank matters you. of great moment. Absolutely are. Elliot Tepper, of course, Professor Emeritus at uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.